If you have a Bible, we're going to turn to chapter 1, verse 19 through 27 tonight. James 1, 19 through 27. James now gives several exhortations to the saints regenerated to live the life of sanctification from verse 19 to 27. From 19 to 21, we get the inward transformation by the Word of God. The believer is called to pay attention to the Word of God. Um, the believer is confronted, notice, with personal responsibility and accountability being regenerated. So then, my beloved brethren. The counsel James is about to give is building off the previous verse, verse 18, the fact that they had been born again by the will of God and God's truth of the word. Um, the expression so then means inasmuch or therefore. The phrase in one sense is conclusive in view of the fact that you were brought forth by the word of truth, and the phrase in another sense is transitional in view of the fact that you have the potential to be a kind of first fruits to God's creatures. So it's conclusive and transitional as he moves on. The counsel notice about to be given is done in the loving affection in verse 19. The word um, beloved, agapitos, it means uh, to be dear esteem, worthy of love. It's a diminutive expressing that affection. And the word indicates God's divine love as the source, agape love. That's far different from our love. Our love, emotional love, phileo is very fickle, very selfish. The sexual love also is abusive and selfish if we're not living under God's agape love. So God's agape love blossoms the other loves. The other one is storge, as a family love. And if you try to manifest and be over those loves without God's love, then our sin nature corrupts and misuses them often. And so it's important for God's love. Um, this love is distinct from that human love, as I said. Uh, so the word brethren, Adelpha, is born of the same womb. We have seen this before. Um, by the word of God, the spirit of God into the family of God. It appears three times in James um, Chapter 1, verse 16, 19, and chapter 2, verse 5. So notice the believer is given three things that are the will of God, hearing the word of God. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. These Christians were being persecuted for the word and their faith, as you know. We've seen this already. The phrase led is a, is a command to, um, in the tense is the imperative present active. Some take the indicative. You'll find sometimes Greek scholars differ on one or the other. But this expresses the responsibility of the believer. No option. So um, sometimes people say, well, you know, I, I, I think that's your personal opinion. When the scriptures say, when they give a command, it's for every believer. Um, there is no, uh, no, no exceptions. Now, every man indicates all believers again. And the word every, each, all, every one. And so uh, the word that's used for man is anthropos. Uh, we get uh, anthropology, the study of man, uh, same word. Uh, it's a generic term for male, female, whatever. It's a, a human being. Um, the believer is to listen, notice, with an open heart and mind to God's word in 19. This verse is often interpreted and used for not paying attention being too quick to speak and losing one's temper with another. 
but the context refers specifically when someone is speaking forth the word of God or about the word, not our response to people in general, though it is a good principle to live out. So the context is important. The word swift means quick, speedily, quickly. This form is found only this time. And the idea is of being ready and attentive to learn and obey. The purpose to please God. The vertical is always the most important. That's our relationship to God directly. Each and every one of us, first to the Lord, then to each other. The husband and wife to the Lord, then to each other, to the children, so on and so forth. And so the word here, akuo, means to attend and consider what has been said about the word. We get acute hearing from that word, keen. Um, sharp, attentive hearing. Uh, verse 21, verse 22, verse 25. We listen carefully and critically to understand and comprehend the words being expressed regarding the Word of God. 191 times is found in the New Testament. Um, simply the New Testament is that we hear, listen, understand. And obey. It all goes together. And so the Eris Act of Tense refers to the whole business of hearing about the will of God revealed in the Word of God. Many times people will talk to you and say, you know, this, I, I, God, God led me to do this and God told me to do that, but it's, it's contrary to the Scripture. The will of God is found in the Word of God. God doesn't tell you to do something contrary to His Word. A lot of this kind of uh, experiential Christianity goes into extreme Pentecostalism. Uh, you have Assemblies of God, Foursquare. Uh, you have uh, a lot of the emergent churches that go this way, extreme Pentecostalism, the new revival of uh, the guy up north, all that kind of stuff. All of this is just, you know, modern-day Pentecostalism. Experiences and self-imposed prophetic offices and everything else that have no place today. And so the word slow means not to quick, uh, so quick or sudden, impulsively, without thinking it through or understanding the matter. We should consider the words. We should think through the intent of what is stated. Very important. Um, every time I speak, you should be taking notes. You should be putting either question mark or even if you feel strongly, a circle and a slash, and, and then you can ask the questions when I'm done and, and confront me. Any pastor that's not willing to be confronted on what he has said, then get up and walk out. Okay? Doesn't mean he's going to agree with you. You may be wrong. Just because he doesn't agree doesn't mean that you're right, okay? So it's important that you listen to the whole thing and get the facts together. Um, and the word to speak means to simply to utter the voice and to admit sound with the idea to communicate one another the thoughts of another. Uh, we do this every day. It's an amazing thing that God gives us language that we can speak. Uh, it's amazing because when you hear somebody else speak a language you don't know, you're going, what the heck are they saying? It's just, it means nothing to you. But once you learn that language, man, it just, it just clicks together, right? An amazing ability we have. You ever, you ever hear a dog talk? How about a lion? We're the only ones that speak, articulate language. It's an amazing thing, being created in the image and likeness of God. And so the errors again here, the whole business of speaking for the one's opinion about the word of God and what they heard stated about it, uh, to think, 
contemplate or to come to the right answer or response to what was heard about the Word of God. So as we listen to a pastor, a teacher, we, we, we hopefully are following verse by verse and dealing with the text, with the context, with language or whatever it is, so that we're following the train of thought and that we can um, see it fit together uh, with the whole epistle in that. Notice still in 19, the believer is to control his temper also. The word wrath means anger or natural disposition of our sin nature uh, with lasting resentments. I know you don't know anything about that, but just in case, uh, displaying an attitude of irritation, displaying a spirit of superiority, the desire to assert oneself forcibly and preeminently, be it in words or in action. This is our sin nature. Me, myself, and I, the trinity of darkness. Certainly all three of these commands have been dealt with indirectly with the person blaming God of tempting him or her when the cause is their own failure in faith. They are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, listen, against God. But the context, again, is the response of a person to another person about the word of God. So you have to be careful. Some people will twist things. It's talking about the relationship between people. The vertical, again, is going to dictate my attitude and my perspective and the word of God. Not everyone is going to agree. If you think that everybody that comes here agrees with me, you're greatly mistaken. There are some people that come here regularly that adamantly do not agree with some of the things I say. But it's okay, I'm the pastor. They don't have to come. There's no problem. Just like your kids may not always agree with you at home. But you're the father, right? You're the parent, right? Everybody gets a shot in life. They only get one shot. Everybody will get a turn, one way or the other. But again, the standard is not what I say. Is What I say is that according to the Word of God, because the authority is the Word of God, once again, the plumb line. And so we are commanded to respond to biblical questions with a right attitude here. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always give, be ready to give a defense to everyone who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who re revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. So we're to study in such a way that we can answer people. And as we're growing and learning, developing in, in Christ, we don't have all the answers right off the bat. We may not have all the answers even to the last day of our life. But we're to study, and if I don't have it, I say, you know what? I'll find out about it. Let me look it up. I don't know it. Sometimes people ask me some questions. I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say nothing about that. But we should be able to respond to the things that are revealed by God as we study. And so um, the scriptures say, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God 
perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. So you and I were, 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 were sons of the devil before. There's only two families, sons of God and sons of the devil, all right? And that includes daughters, okay? Two families. And when we were following Satan and we didn't know we were following Satan, we were doing his will. Now we're born again, we're doing the will of the Father. How do we know the will of the Father? Because we know the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God, very important. So we want to give answers in, in, a, in a way of humility and meekness and accurate knowledge to be able to respond to those who oppose Christianity and have some sincere questions, some just to try to trap you or whatever, but it doesn't matter. You give it with the right attitude. Look at verse 20. The believer is cautioned about angry words towards those speaking the word of God. The reason for the command in verse 19 is that a believer still has a sin nature for the wrath of man. It says here in verse 20. He carries over the word wrath, repeating it to progress the teaching about the wrath of man after his style of Paranesis that we've been mentioning. The word wrath, orge, again means anger, the natural disposition of our sin nature, being argumentative. Displaying an attitude of irritation, displaying a spirit of superiority. The desire to assert oneself forcibly and preeminently, uh, be it in word or in action, as we said before. You look at Jesus Christ, you know, he, he knew everything. And yet he dealt with people with great humility and great love. But that doesn't mean that you don't confront in anger when it's proper. Jesus did. Okay? So we have to be careful not going to one extreme or the other. Notice he has already pointed out this in response to a person trying to blame God and tempting him back in chapter 1. Verse 13 and 15. Uh, so a believer still has the capacity of sin to tempt himself. So we're not to blame God, as it says there in verse 13, but ourselves. God tests us, we tempt ourselves. And he focuses on us, but we know that the world can tempt us, Satan can tempt us. So the temptation is from within and from without. Okay, But he focuses on the individual. Um, Christians still go through the same process before being a Christian. Each one is tempted and then drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So I have the new nature that God has given me as a Christian, and I have the old nature that is depraved. Depravity, though, is not total like Calvinists teach. Nowhere do you find that in Scripture. Every, if you don't know the acronym, for the, it's called a TULIP, total depravity. Every, every first word, okay, the hyphenated tulip of Calvinism does not exist in the Bible. Total depravity is not found in the Bible. Depravity is, we're creating the image and likeness of God. We have potential for good, but our bent is towards evil. That's not total. It's made up by Calvinists. Grace is biblical. Irresistible, not biblical. <laughs> and every one of those um, points of Calvinism, they're made up. They're not biblical. I challenge you to study it. And so Christians still go through the same thing. Christians can still commit acts of sin. 
In verse 15, then the desire has conceived, you give birth to sin, and it's full grown, and it brings forth death, right? Every one of us know what that's like, even as a Christian. But that's not where we live. But we do fall short at times, right? So we stay right with God. In verse 16, Christians can still deceive self about their sin nature. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So we have the potential. Sin can deceive me. I can deceive me. Satan can deceive me. The world can deceive me. I better watch out. A lot of things can deceive me as a believer. The non-believers deceive totally, as you and I were before Christ. And so notice he is reminding the believer that the sin nature of the believer does not get better as they grow in Christ, nor does it ever become eradicated. All right? You want to study the, the old man? Reckoning the old man dead? You find it in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 8. That's reckoning the old man dead. Paul in chapter 7 still was trusting himself. I, 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 I. Autobiographical. Born again Paul. Still thought he could do it in himself. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. He moves to chapter 8. There's no I there anymore. It's Christ, life in the spirit. He got it. He connected the dots. Wow. That's not warfare in 7. It's willful defeat by trusting myself. Very, very important. You pick up a commentary. I don't care if it says it's critical. If chapter 7 says it's warfare, throw it away. It's worthless. It's wrong exposition. Now, the problem is internal then. The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79. Jesus said, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries, and so on and so forth, and Matthew 15, 19 through 20. That's still always there. David committed adultery, right? David killed Uriah, right? The problem is also external, the world, Satan, and sin, as I said. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, it's, of the, it's not of the Father, but of the world, 1 John 2, 16. It's all around us. You can't escape it. Every generation. It's not just today, the modern thing, oh, today with this and that. Every generation has its this, this, uh, open doors of evil, if you will. The problem is that the heart of sin nature and pride, Satan fell due to pride, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, 1 Timothy 3, 6 tells us. Saul, David, and Solomon fell due to pride. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. That's for believers. Notice in verse 20 still, the sin nature of the believer cannot produce the quality of life. God can. Does not produce the righteousness of God. The phrase the righteousness of God refers to the state of a person as they ought to be and act, to be in an acceptable condition before God. That can only happen through the new divine nature, through the new life. The source is God, the word of God, the power of the spirit of God. Not mine. Not at all. Since God is omniscient and he does what is best for the believer, always. Since God is omnipresent, he is always available to the believer. And since God is omnipotent, he is working in and through the believer, bringing about the new life of Christ in every way. So as I yield to him, as I abide in him, as I obey him, then God's going to work through me. But he doesn't force me. There is no cruise control in Christianity. Not at all. 
since God through all his attributes is the epitome of perfection even when he displays wrath because it's righteous, justified, and vindicated and deserves to be poured upon sinful man. Whatever means it expresses or manifests through God. When God acts, it's absolutely perfect and righteous. Now, some people have the audacity, even Christians, saying, well, you know, if I was God, I wouldn't have done that way. Oh, so you're, you're smarter than God, huh? I don't know why God would, you know, create man and then let him be sinful. So you've gotten more understanding. You're more compassionate than God. Why is there children born blind and, you know, all this, this uh, the AIDS and uh, COVID now? And, uh, you know, so you're more concerned about the world than God. This world is the result of man's rebellion against God. God never intended this. And he's allowing the fall and its consequence to work out. But along parallel line, while this sinful world's carrying out, the redemption plan of God is being carried out. And every generation, people are being born again and entering the kingdom of God. I call that mercy. Because if I was God, I would have smoked Adam. I wouldn't give him a promise of redemption. Okay? God's mercy. And so God's love is selfless. Man's love is selfish. God's kindness is without partiality. Man is very partial. God's wrath is justified. Man's wrath is vindictive. We're so different. The believer by his wrath can misrepresent Jesus as his Savior. We can speak despising a person. We can speak looking down on a person. We can speak to um, offend a person. We can speak to injure a person. We can speak vindictive to take revenge on a person. That's our sin nature. Our protection is to depend on the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 17, you cannot do that which you would. Walk in the spirit or in the flesh, one or the other. You can't do both. Ephesians 5, 18, keep on being filled with the spirit of God. We're born into spiritual warfare. The enemy is Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, dead in trespasses and sins we were. The warfare is in chapter 6 of Ephesians 10 through 18, the full armor of God. And 1 Peter 5 eight says that we're to watch carefully because Satan as a roaring lion is seeking whom he may devour. He's Roman. And so we are to confront false doctrine and heresy because it leads us away from God. 1 Timothy 1.7, Titus 3.10 and 11. The pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, doctrine, 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 doctrine. Why is it that the emergent church doesn't want to fight about doctrine? What? Why does the Bible talk about doctrine? So you don't agree with the Bible then? Pastors, elders, people. Wow. Amazing. Be angry, he says, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. Nor give place to the devil, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. So there are things that truly are justified in our, in our anger towards it. But we're not to remain angry to where it causes us to sin and become vindictive or stuff like that. We're to pray for our enemies, right? But there's a time of confrontation, a time to deal with things. So we have to be careful. Look at 21. The believer is commanded to be um, transformed by the word. The full potential of the believer uh, to reckon the old man dead is stated. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness, overflowing of wickedness. Um, the logical conclusion is to continue to put to death the old sin nature. 
um, not to manifest unrighteousness in, in our life. Um, the, the phrase lay aside is a participle or is middle. Again, the middle, the person is doing it, and it's emphatic, um, literally having laid aside. So the action has been done in the past by the believer in obedience to deny the old sin nature to rule the old man. And therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, Ephesians 4.25 says. Who's he telling that to? Christians. Why? Because they still have sin nature. Okay? They still have the potential. You still have it. I still have it. The phrase depicts the putting off of a garment or a coat, like putting a jacket on, putting a shirt on. It implies an awareness of our own sin nature that we have to put off. This implies the ability to put it off as it arises to manifest itself. We're very aware of it. Colossians 3, 5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Who's he talking to? Christians. You can't tell this to the non-believer. You can't do it. Be ridiculous. So believers to put off, like a garment, all filthiness, all, again, as we've noted often, everything, anytime, every time, all unrighteous wrath of man, all the sin nature the old man can produce. So the category is all filthiness. The word filthiness uh, means what defiles is immoral and vile to soil the life of Christ in the believer, appearing only one time in the New Testament. Um, therefore, we, the scripture says also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, attracts us, stumbles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1, looking back to the hall of faith of chapter 11. Their example. Who's he talking to? Christians. So the believers to put off like a garment also all overflowing wickedness. Overflowing is an adjective describing quantity, the amount of something. And the word means abundance and superabundance. The idea of being sin nature has the ability to produce excessive amount of whatever it is describing as its object in the sentence. There is no end to sin. It just goes on and on and on, unless you walk in the Spirit. And so the object is, in this case, is wickedness. It means that which is malignant with malice, having ill will to injure, good for nothing. Naughtiness is a good word, First Peter 2.1. True to producing after his own kind, sin nature produces sins. Okay? You're not a sinner because you produce sins. The sin doesn't make you a sinner. The sin only gives evidence and proof that you're a sinner. An apple tree gives apples because it's an apple tree. It never gives a cherry. All right? Producing in kind. Go back to Genesis. After its own kind. And so jealousy, envy, deceit, lust, hatred, murder, and many, many other things. Romans 6, 6 says, um, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him and the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer 
be slaves of sin, now having the ability to say no to sin by the Spirit of God, the Word of God. And so the full proof protection to not manifest outward indignation through inner transformation is stated, listen carefully, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Verse 21. So the solution is a declarative command. The word receives the take with the hand, an imperative heiress middle. You'd have to do it yourself individually. Each person must be obedient to take God's word for themselves, hide it in their hearts to not sin against God, as Psalm 119, says. The disposition is to be in meekness, not pride. Mark that well. Gentleness, humble. Power under control is a good uh, definition. Having proper perspective of one's gratefulness to God and the privilege of being helped by God. Have you ever just sat around and just saw how, how blessed you are that you're able to understand what's going on in the world? You're able to connect the dots? You're able to know the will of God? You're able to know that Jesus is coming for you? That the Antichrist is coming? That globalism is not man's, man's idea as a plan, but it's in their heart and God has laid it out before and you have the Bible? Have you ever thought about how fortunate we are? Amazing, amazing. The solution is ascribed to one thing, the Word of God. The Word is to be implanted by the new nature. Since man's nature is sinful, this has to refer to the gospel, believing and embrace through repentance. The implanted gospel gave them the new nature. They were born again, able to please God. 18, verse 18 says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. The individual, notice, has to cultivate the seed in the heart. We talked about the parable, uh, kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Uh, the four hearts is the soils. It's the heart of man that's the problem. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen without the cost of reckoning the old man dead daily. The word of God is key to the entire passage. Verse 18, 21, 22, 23, 25. Word of God, word of God, word of God. Why is it that more, more pastors don't teach the word of God? You don't teach the word of God to people. You keep them ignorant and vulnerable to destroy their lives. You teach people so they can feed themselves spiritually. So they can go to the word. They can have that personal relationship with the Lord to grow and develop. Nothing wrong with coming to church. We're not to forsake the gathering, but you must go to the Lord. You must grow yourself in the word of God. And so the word able there means to have power and capability. Participle, present, middle, literally being able. The problem is not with the word, but the individual. He's talking to Christians. The soul usually refers to the intellect, emotion, and the will of man, distinct from the body, as you know. In the context, it refers to the entire person of the new man, the new creation of body, soul, and spirit, because we don't just occupy one. All three are tied together, though they're distinct. So the believer's salvation is described in Scripture by a threefold aspect. He has been saved, he is being saved, 
and he shall be saved, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, and Romans 5, 10. It has been said, sin will keep you from the Bible, and the Bible will keep you from sin. You want corrective or preventive medicine, spiritual? <laughs> it's your choice. Preventive is always best. The longest psalm speaks only about one thing, the Word of God, Psalm 119. The New Testament epistles have high praise for the Word of God. Again, look at the pastoral epistles all over. Now, from verse 22 to 25, the outward manifestation of the implanted word. This morning, we dealt with it in depth. We'll go through general. The proclamation to non-doers. Now, you got to get this right. Non-doers in verse 22. He's talking to Christians. But be doers of the word. So the exhortation is to live out God's word. These believers stand in sharp contrast to those in verse 21. Those who are laying aside like a dirty garment, their sinful practices with meekness. The word but contrasting conjunction. But the contrast is not between believers and non-believers. The context is between believers who are doers of the word and believers who are hearers only. Make sure you understand that. The two have been brought forth by the will of God to Obey the word of God, as verse 18 says. The exhortation is not a suggestion, but an imperative command. The middle indicative, a continuous practice of the word by the individual in obedience. The command would be absurd, completely impossible for a non-believer. He's talking to Christians, not non-believers. And so the phrase, be a doer, means to live out in obedience to the word. This is only possible for one that's born again, once again. 14 and 15 shows the distinction. The process is hearing, receiving, and obeying. Verse 19, 21, 22. He's talking to Christians. Notice the exhortation to the believer is by way of warning and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. The non-believer is deceived. He's talking to Christians. The problem is that they have come to a place in their spiritual walk being satisfied with merely hearing the word of God. There are professional Christians. They just go here, there. They just, oh, I heard this guy. I sat under this guy. Man, this guy's good, this and that. But they're not doers of the word. That's a problem for them. But it's also a problem with God. Again, if they were unbelievers, James would be out of line to require this of them. The word hears is, in this form, appears four times in the New Testament. Romans 2, 13, and then James has it again in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, 23, and 25. And so the accountability of the hearer of the word is to God. We said this morning the vertical is the most important. The implication of hearing is that they have the ability to understand and respond for what they hear. When Adam was given the instructions... To obey or not obey, he understood them. And he had the ability to obey them. So Adam's fall was not God's fault. God didn't predestine it, as Calvinists say. They're charging God with injustice, blasphemous. And so the consequence of being only a hearer is that they are deceiving themselves. The word deceive means to have wrong reasoning. 
para alongside and logizomai to account, to reckon, to calculate. It's an accounting term. The person who was here only of the word and not a doer is based on illogical reasoning. It makes no sense. Not from the logical, rational place of, of our natural thinking, let alone from the scriptures. It doesn't, it doesn't correlate. So their assessment of themselves is not reality. It's false. Three different words are used to warn the believer against self-deception. Verse 16, 22, and 26. John the Baptist, as you know, and Jesus rebuked and warned the Pharisees and the Sadducees of their hypocrisy in, in Matthew 3, Matthew 5, Matthew 23, and many, many other places. Uh, do not be deceived. God is not mine. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7 says. Who's he talking to? Christians. Wow. Look at 23 and 24, the illustration of the non-doer. The particular illustration would be understood throughout the ages. It's a very common one. No one would ever misunderstand it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. It takes the leading word here again, as the previous verse hears, and repeats it and advances his thought now. The application of the illustration is conditioned based on anyone who is a hearer only, not a doer of the word. Those are Christians. The individual is still the believer held accountable to obey God's word. Notice he compares the mere hearing of God's word to a man who's looking in a mirror. This simile, and a simile is always introduced by one of two words, like or as. It's a man looking into this mirror, and it's common in the paranetic style that he uses the repetition of words and advances his argument, literally to stress the idea and the existing person in the context. The word observing means to perceive and consider with attentive scrutiny and reflection. Ladies, you know all about that in mirrors, okay? You look to see if you're okay. As I said this morning, you do it in the morning before you leave the house. Many, many times, you do it one more time before you leave the house. When you get in the car, you adjust your mirror and you look at yourself. You make sure everything's okay before you get out of the car. And if you come in the church, first thing you do is when you go to the restroom, you look at the mirror. Why? Because your mirror never lies to you. The Word of God never lies to you. It tells you who you are. You're a sinner. You have great potential for sin. And unless you walk in the Spirit as Christians and I, God help us and everyone else around us. It's not good. So the participle present active tense here, uh, this is not a mere casual look, as some say, but a careful examination to mark what is wrong, to correct it. Look in the mirror, you got your buttons on wrong. <sighs> you fix them up. I know you young people don't know what I'm talking about. As you get older, you'll find out, you'll, 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 you'll have a good laugh. You, the older you get, the more dumb things you do, and you don't even know it. But you look to correct, not to just say, ah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't happen like that. And so the mirror uh, refers to polished metal brass uh, that they used to use for the reflection, uh, not glass as we know it. Um, the personal failure of this kind of man is stated, notice, for he observes himself 
goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So he observes himself, sees the outward image of his person. The outward image of his person is the reputation, who he thinks he is. Okay? What he looks like on the outside. He's a hearer, but not a doer. The word observes is in the same as the previous verse to perceive or consider attentively with reflection. The tense is different. The indicative error is active, something as a fact having taken place in the past and consider carefully. So he did it in the past, but now he's forgotten about it in the present. What he fails to see is the inward need of ongoing transformation in relation to the hearing of God's word, which is character. Okay? Um, when the heart is disposed to God and the manifestation outwardly lines up with that, that's character. When the heart is instructed on something, but the outwardness doesn't line up with that, that's duplicity. That's only reputation, as people see, because we can cover up real good. He therefore ignores to make the necessary changes that are so evident in need by the help of the mirror. Verse 24, this person goes away, notice, departs, withdraws from the mirror. Indicative, perfect active, completed act indicating permanence. He fixes nothing. He does nothing. Who is this guy? He's a Christian. This person immediately forgets what kind of man he saw in the mirror. The word forget simply means to neglect. The indicative error is middle again, past fact by the individual himself. Both errors are historic, the Greek scholar Linsky tells us. And so he willfully puts out of his mind his need of inward transformation and the need of being a doer of the word. Out of mind, out of sight, we used to say in the 60s. He doesn't connect the dots. Self-deception is a tragic and dangerous condition as a believer, the error of his ways. James closes um, um, the letter with this. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, that's not a non-believer, that's a believer, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner, the sinner is a Christian who has gone back, from, the error, from, from his error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins, James 5, 19 through 20. So as you and I observe brothers and sisters in our life that at times start backsliding, get caught up with sin, and as we confront them in love to repent and turn around and walk with God again, this is what he's talking about. He will save a soul from his error and death and cover a multitude of sins. And so in 25, the application to the doer is given to us, the positive affirmation of the person making the necessary change, being a doer of the word of God. Listen to what he says. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. The person is in sharp contrast to the one in the previous three verses, 22 through 24. The word but, again, adversive conjunctive, conjunction here. The one laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness in 21. The one yielding to inward transformation of the heart as in verse 18, first fruit. The hearer and the doer. And so this person is measuring himself to the word of God Consistently, the phrase looking into means to stoop over something. Um, 
to get a better understanding and vision of that. Five times in the New Testament appears. The idea is careful examination is used for John and Mary when they entered the tomb and stooped down to examine it carefully because it was empty. It's also used for, uh, in 1 Peter 1.12 for the angels who stoop down to look what's going on in the church because the angels don't know the future. They just check it out as any one of us would. Interesting. And so the phrase is a participle errors act of literally having looked. The reason being that it was very important for the matter of conforming to the word of God. We're looking in that mirror to see what needs to be taken care of. The perfect law of liberty refers to the word of God. Although all um, they had at this time was the Old Testament, the New Testament was already being written and dispersed about. Um, Jeremiah 31, 33 speaks of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Paul makes this clear throughout his epistles. And so the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, Galatians 3, 24, Hebrews 10, 1. Uh, everything was fragmentary and progressive until the full revelation of Christ who fulfilled all things. The entire book of Hebrews speaks about Christ. The book of Hebrews is the Leviticus of the New Testament. It interprets everything in the Old Testament in Leviticus. And Christ is the, the person who fulfills all those types and emblems. And so the reference to perfect means to complete the complete revelation of God composed of that progressiveness from the Genesis point onward. And so Jesus is the ultimate person who God speaks through in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Um, the word of God lacks nothing, being fully self-sufficient, referring to the word of truth. Notice the implanted word, the perfect law of liberty, able to set a man free from sin, transform them so they can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in verse 18, 21 to 12, and other passages also. Notice the article is present here, the, the liberty, literally, without doubt, from the words of Jesus in John 8, 31 and 32. And so the man in verse 23 and 24 immediately forgets, neglects to do anything about what he has seen. The man in verse 25 continues in it, the perfect law of liberty. The commitment to obey is marked by the word continues, underline that literally means having continued in, remaining besides the word, making constant needed changes. Another participle, errors active, to indicate the fact. The personal benefit to the one who obeys the word of God is stated. Listen to him, 25. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he does. And so the person being responsible to do what he hears is a doer of the word of God. He is very conscious of what he is hearing and what he understands. The word forgetful means not negligent. He's not forgetful. He is a doer of the word and also a doer of the work here. Actions, behavior, godliness, and so the tense is participle or is middle, literally having been a doer in the past and the present. And so this person will be blessed in what he does. And so the blessing is for being a doer of the word of God. We're not working for our salvation as many times Calvinists accuse us of. We are depending on the justification before God, the death of Jesus Christ and resurrection. But once we're born again, we have to yield to God to obey him. 
It doesn't happen automatically. We're not working for ourselves. We're giving evidence of our salvation. That's what we're doing. So literally in, in, in his doing, in other words, the blessing is the fruit of doing, obeying, and sowing, and reaping. This is the only time it's found here. And the word bless, markarios, is, uh, means happy, but not happiness like the world. You know, you get a new car and you're happy, and then you drive it out of the car lot and somebody smashes into it, now you're not so happy. Happiness of the world is based on what you have, your emotions, your feelings. This happiness is full, complete happiness, contentment with what God has. It's a work of the Spirit and usually expressed by the word joy, which is uh, one manifestation of God's agape love. And so uh, the blessed man is uh, given to us in Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3. He doesn't walk in the seat of the scornful. He doesn't stand. He doesn't sit with the unbelievers. And, in, and, and everything he does, God blesses because he's by the water of God's word, nourishing him and growing, obeying. And so God will impart the knowledge and wisdom to this person, guiding, directing, and protecting them. Uh, notice the word will is uh, in the indicative future middle voice. He will be the recipient from God because God alone knows the heart. God knows where I am. God knows where you are. God knows that we're praying sincerely or not. God knows that we're doubting. God knows that we want to obey. God knows everything. So we don't know our hearts are intense, but God does. So again, the vertical axis is the most important. Notice this is the second of three Beatitudes. The other one says uh, chapter 1, verse 12 and 5, 11. The believer is to continue abiding in the word of God. Jesus is the greatest authority, John 15. Study it real carefully, okay? And there are many others. Romans 11, 22, Colossians 1, 21, 23. Continue, 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 abide, abide. Jesus spoke to the dirty dozen in John 15, and he goes from the branches. He says, if you do not abide in me, I will cut you off. Cast you to the fire. Application, okay? So if that is impossible, then Jesus was lying. Which way you want it? Very, very important. Now from 26 to 27, you have the religious self-deception acting contrary to the word. In 26, the control of one's tongue. These are believers who have a false estimation of themselves. If anyone among you thinks he is religious. Verse 26 summarizes the hear of the word only. Looking to verse 19 through 21. And so the potential candidate is anyone. This would certainly apply to a person who is a non-believer also. But the context he's speaking to is believers. The potential candidate is anyone then. They are not born again. They don't uh, have the spirit. They cannot understand the word of God. But God knows exactly where they're at. Okay? There are many people. Some of you were religious. I was religious to an extent. But I didn't understand God's word. But he's talking to believers here. This applies to the believer to whom James addresses in the letter. The phrase anyone among you means whoever you be by or in the midst of you. Church. The one brought forth by the will of God in 18. The one still having sin nature in verse 14 through 15. That's still the context. And so potential problem is stated. The person perceives themselves as something they are not in reality. The word thinks means to suppose oneself to be a certain person when they are not. Their judgment of self is false. There are people that all of us know. They are Christians and and. And they truly are saved and they love the Lord. But 
they, they don't, they're not aware of, of their self-righteousness, how they always inject themselves or present themselves as how good they are. And they're totally blind to it. And when you're talking to them, you're going, oh my Lord, are you kidding me? But it happens. They have a wrong perception of themselves. The person is stated to believe they are religious and ob objective found only this time in the New Testament and not used for Christianity, but outward, visible form of religious behavior. Herodotus uses it in various practices uh, by the Egyptians' priests, and there are two nouns in these two verses and four different forms, a total of seven in the New Testament, in Acts 25, 19, 26, 5, and Colossians 2, 18, and 23. Now the problem, notice, of such a person as stated does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. The person is one speaking contrary to his potential of the new birth. That's the problem. He allows his tongue to go unchecked when he speaks. It refers back to verse 19 and 20, slow to speak, not produce righteousness of God. And the word bridle means to hold in check, to restrain or control, found only one other time in James 3.2. From two words, bit means led or guide. That's how it's translated there. We'll get a whole chapter on the tongue, the beast behind the ivory cage. The principle is a participle active, literally not restraining the habit of life, doing it constantly, having no dominion over the tongue. We turn horses, these big beasts with this little steel bit. We turn these huge ships with this little rudder, but this little sucker just whips us good. More people have been destroyed in the church by the tongue than any other sin. I guarantee you. The person's tongue was created by God to communicate with man and God. The word tongue is glossa, the organ of speech mentioned in every chapter. 119, 31, 313, 411, 12, 59. He dedicates an entire chapter to the tongue. Third chapter. The tongue is great potential for destruction, expressing our evil heart and sin nature. Um, James in 3, 5, even so, the tongue is a little member that boasts great things. See how great a force a little fire kindles. 3, 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. A tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. 3.8, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. 3.9, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. And then in 3.10, he says, out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings, my brother. These things are not to be so. <laughs> He's talking to Christians. Hears and doers. And so the person is deceiving his own heart. The word deceiving means to cheat or to beguile oneself. The word appears two other times in this verb form in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 6, and 1 Timothy 2, 14. The participle is a present active, deceiving his heart as not 
bridling his mouth. This is a contradiction and self-deception. Verse 16, verse 22. What is going on outwardly is evidence of what is not a reality inwardly. The hard cardia is who we really are spiritually, our intellect, emotion, and will, yielding to our revised spirit by the new birth, if we're doers. And if not, it's the old man. And so notice the reality of such conduct of a person is stated. This one's religion is useless, good for nothing. This person, by having a false estimation of himself and not having his tongue um, spirit control, does not honor God. The word religion means religious worship, but in our context it refers to what is external works of man and religious estimation. Paul uses it for the strict sect of the Pharisees and religious worship of angels in Acts 26.5 and Colossians 2.18. Notice this encompasses, encompasses our religious activity that has no relationship to God. Okay? Very important. The word useless means unprofitable, devoid of force, truth, or purpose. Used for the vanities of idol worship and thoughts of the wise apart from God in vain in Acts 14, 15 and 1 Corinthians 3, 20. It does not save or bless him by God. And there's millions of religions. This man is a hearer, but not a doer of the word. He has divorced the comprehension of the word of God from the transformation of the heart. He has put the value on doing rather than being. The beatitudes, not do attitudes. <laughs> he has come to see himself for what he does rather than who he is in heart before God. The Sermon on the Mount rebukes the scribes and the Pharisee for their religiosity. Read chapter 6, 1 through 19. Often people that are religious have a difficult time with the gospel of faith due to the ritual, ceremony, and traditions that are not based on Christ, but religion. Colossians 2, 8 through 10 speaks about it, 16 and 19. And so notice here, 27, the care of orphans and widows are touched, um, connected with religion. He says, uh, the only thing God honors is what is approved by his word. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. So verse 27 summarizes the doer of the word, looking to verse 22 through 25. He took the leading word, religion, to develop his discussion on religion. The use of the word in the previous verse to indicate the hearer of the word only, no yielding to the transforming effect or power going on in the heart. And so notice he uses the word religion now to show what is better before God through Jesus rather than external acts of worship. For the word religion is in the noun form. As the previous verse indicating religious worship through the word of truth received with meekness, the word, the implanted word, looking into the perfect law of liberty is talked about in 18, 21, and 25. You've got to stand course with James. You've got to think. You've got to follow it. And so he describes the quality of what God honors, what is pure and undefiled religion. The word pure simply means free from sin, 
corrupt desires or guilt from within looking back to verse 22-25, the doer of the word. Jesus used it for the pure heart of his disciples in John 15-3 and also Matthew 5-8. Paul used it for the pure conscience of man in 2 Timothy 1-3. The word undefiled means unsoiled from without. What is free from the effects and abasement of corrupt sin nature. The word is used for Jesus. Listen, holy, harmless, undefiled. Hebrews 7.26. The word is used for the marriage bed. Undefiled. Hebrews 13.4. The word is used for the inheritance of the believer. Incorrupt. Undefiled. 1 Peter 1.4. And so the affirmation of the pure and undefiled is indicated by the phrase, before God. Underline that. Before means alongside, implying the approval of his judgment. It is revealed through the, his word, done by the direction of the Lord, knowing all and seeing all, and I being very aware of it, it is done through the Lord and for the Lord depending on him, abiding in him, calling upon him for wisdom, direction, strength, guidance, patience to bring him glory. Wow. Notice still in 27, there are the two most important things to the heart of God as evidence of the life of faith, doing the will of God, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. He knows the will of God by the word of God. He cares for orphans then. Uh, the word orphan simply means those who are bereft of parents. What, there's nothing more uh, tragic and sad than that in itself. A child with no natural parents to care for them, appearing only one more time in the New Testament. The other time appears um, is for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans in uh, John 14, 18 in the Old King James. The word visit means to look after because they are living under trouble, affliction, distress. The Old Testament had much to say about orphans. Exodus 22, 22, Deuteronomy 24, 17, and many, many others, the prophets, major and minor prophets. He knew the will of God by the word of God. He cares then also for not only orphans, but widows. Widows means women whose husbands are dead, needing care, living under trouble, affliction, Distress, the word appears 26 times in the New Testament. Jesus charged the fairies of devouring widows' houses in Matthew 23, 14. That still goes on today by pastors and evangelists who just pray on the elderly and by people who come to church sometimes. Okay? Nothing new under the sun. Everything that went on in the New Testament in the Bible has gone on every generation and more because you're dealing with sinful man. And so the apostles were charged by the Hellenists against the Hebrews neglecting the widows in Acts 6, 1 through 6. Remember? The Old Testament had much to say about widows. Once again, Deuteronomy 14, 29, caring for them. There was an entire a tithe that went for the widows and, and the orphans and that. Um, Deuteronomy 24, 19, um, uh, 24, 20, uh, 26, 12 through 13. Very specific. The New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16, Paul lays down clear and specific instructions for how the church is to handle widows. Widows who are truly widows indeed over the age of 60 
and don't have anybody to care for them. But the younger below 60, the families to step in and take care of them so the church can take care of other widows. Uh, because being younger, they'll free, be committed to Christ and then they'll start meeting guys and then they're going to get married and then, the, and then it's neglected. So he gives very clear instructions on that. Um, again, it's the foundation of that is in the Old Testament. And so um, Paul lays that down in 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. Now notice the consecration of self to God. There in 17, there at the end. Um, the, um, James points out the personal um, commitment here to holiness and to keep oneself unspotted. Um, it's already been uh, implied by the phrase pure and undefiled religion. Um, that is seen only by God, and that is approved and honored by God. And the believer is personally responsible for his or her life of purity. You can't blame your wife. You can't blame your husband. Well, that you did this, I wouldn't have done. That's all junk. That's 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 that's, that's, that's humanistic. That's that doesn't work here. We we don't go. I don't believe in psychology. I don't believe in the observance of sociological studies. That's from the human perspective. You and I are different. We have a divine nature. We can do what God calls us to do in the most difficult things. Are we clear on that? He will always show us a way of escape. Always. Sometimes through it. Sometimes away from it. And so, the word keep means to attend and be careful. It appears 75 times in the New Testament is used of guarding the unity of the Spirit in Scripture in Ephesians 4.3, Revelation 1.3, 22.7, and 9. And so the infinitive is the present act of tense indicating an ongoing state to be cultivated, guarded, and maintained. Let me give you a good word. Stick to itness. <laughs> Stay on course. And so the condition of living a sanctified life is described by the word unspotted, free from censure, irreproachability, if you will, that no one can accuse me of a thing that's untrue. In other words, they can accuse you, but they can't verify the accusation by witness or by evidence. Very important, okay? The word appears three other times in the New Testament. Paul uses it. He says that, we, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until the Lord Jesus Christ appearing in 1 Timothy 6, 14. 1 Peter 1, 19, Peter um, said uh, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish. And here's the word, without spot. 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace. Here it is, without spot and blameless. And so James points out the place of the pollution. Ready for it? Look at it from the world. The world. It's found 187 times. It is used in various ways for the physical world of God's creation, for the inhabitants, the people on earth, and for the fallen, depraved, and unholy existence, existence of living in human race. So the concept will tell you which one it is. James is using the word in this last sense, the depraved, unholy existence in this world system. And so this world is filled with people that have a sin nature, as we said, therefore without repentance and without the new birth, they cannot please God. They cannot obey the word of God. 
They are under the subject and control of the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And they are dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says. And the world is not our home. We are pilgrims and sojourners, Hebrews eleven thirteen says. 1 Peter 1, 1. 1 Peter 2, 11. We're just passing through. Okay? When you go camping and somebody sees a tent out there, they don't believe you've been there forever. If you're kind of rugged, you might be three months or something. But you're not going to be there a year. My body's a tent, by the way. It's falling apart. The closer I get to the end. Okay? It starts tearing. It starts leaking. It starts this. It starts that. Like when you go camping. Man, the first time you think they gave you the wrong tent. It's just too short. And then the more you go camping, the easier it is to put on the poles. And one day you pull and it tears. What? You're going to have to get a new tent. That's the picture of our body. And so... Um, he says, adulterers and adulterers, do, not, do you not know that the friendship of this world is empty with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, James 4.4. God has given us an incredible, ongoing provision to stay right with Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I write these things to you that you do not practice sin as a habit of life anymore. But when you stumble and fall, yeah, Jesus Christ is righteous, the lawyer for the defense. But he's a weird lawyer in the sense that he's not like the lawyers down here. He's a perfect lawyer. This is what Jesus says as your lawyer, as a Christian. If you admit your guilt and your sin, I can get you off. If you don't, I don't even take your case. You're out of fellowship with God. Wow. No one pleads innocent before God. <laughs> None, none whatsoever. And so access to the throne of grace is obtained to obtain mercy and find grace in time of need in Hebrews 4, 14 through 15. To not be conformed to this world system, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind to prove what is a good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Ongoing. It's been 38 years for me. A blink in the night. Fast. I was 30 years old when I began to be your pastor. I'll be 72 in February. Where did the time go? Amazing. What has gotten me through the difficult times of my life? The word of God and the power of the spirit of God. And the prayers of the saints. Same thing that's gotten you through. No different. And so may God continue to head upon us as we study God's word and are doers of the word of God, not just hearers. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your word and power of your spirit. Pray for every person here, Lord, and you would just minister to them and for myself, the things that are necessary. And Lord, for those that are listening uh, over the internet, if there's anyone here or there, Lord, that doesn't know you, that they would call on your name. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ, or maybe out there in the internet world, and um, you want to be born again, you want to ask God to forgive you, to cleanse you, to repent of your sins, a simple prayer of repentance is what God always requires. This is your prayer to him if you want to be born again. Not to us, but to Jesus Christ. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. 
Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.